Lord, as we come to your word now, we thank you for your word and we remember that it is sufficient, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that it is something that we're, if it were not for your Holy Spirit, we could not even understand. And so we pray that by the work of the Spirit in us, that you would illuminate this text for us, help us to understand, help us to see how it applies to our lives, and give us the strength and the wisdom to see what action we should take in light of the truth of this passage, in light of the truth of your word. So grant us wisdom, grant us repentance where we must repent, and teach us to glorify Christ all the more in our lives during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 3. We are still in John chapter 3, and in fact, we are still uh, looking at the, uh, the conversation that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus, which is probably the most famous conversation in all of history. Uh, so we're going to continue studying the new birth today. Uh, this is a central theme in all of Scripture, and this is something that, uh, that you can't go too slow through. Um, if you understand how central the, the new birth is, and you understand how many theological roads converge here, you understand that there are just some, some rich, deep truths in this passage that are worth taking our time going through. We've gleaned so many great truths already from this passage. We've, we've already seen the need that humanity has for the new birth. We've seen the priority of being born again, or, or born from above, if you want to be, translate that more literally. Uh, the priority of being born from above by the sovereign and effectual calling of God. Uh, we've seen that the sovereign and effectual calling of God is the cause of our salvation, and that it results in very specific effects, starting, of course, with repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, we've seen how contrary the gospel is to the wisdom of natural, fallen, unregenerate man. Uh, the utter emptiness, the vanity of any religion which teaches that we must do all that we can in order to be accepted by God or to achieve righteousness or achieve purity or, or holiness. Rather, what we need is grace. Because we fall short of all those things. Humanity in, in, its, in its greatest wisdom can't fathom our need for grace, but this text makes it clear that what we need is grace. What we need first and foremost is the new birth. Now we saw how ignorant Nicodemus was to this concept of being born from above. Nicodemus thinks, okay, the, the, the word from above can also be translated again. So he, he thinks that Jesus is saying you have to be born again. Even though he was a teacher of Israel, and he should have been very familiar with this concept of the new birth, since it was prophesied in the Old Testament, specifically in Ezekiel chapter 36. We've looked at that. And yet, 
when Jesus said, you cannot see and you cannot even enter uh, the, the kingdom unless you're born again, all Nicodemus can do is think, not spiritually, all Nicodemus can do is think naturalistically. He thinks Jesus must be saying that he, that Nicodemus, as an old man, must crawl back inside his mother in order to be born again in a physical sense. But Jesus corrects Nicodemus, and he tells him he's not talking about a birth by the flesh. He's talking about a spiritual birth. So I want to zero in specifically today on verse 6. In the midst of all these, these beautiful doctrines, these beautiful theological truths converging all in one passage, we see Jesus say this in verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And sometimes we come across a statement or a sentence or or just part of a sentence maybe even that is so succinct, so brief, and yet so profoundly rich, so, so incredibly true, filled with truth, uh, that, that the passage will be deserving of additional attention or study. And this is one of those statements. This is just loaded with theological truth. If you look at the, the size of this sentence, it does not compare to the, the vast amount of truth that is just overflowing from this one sentence. It's like 10 pounds of gold in a five-pound bag. You, you just, this is one of those things that's so overflowing with truth, it's worth looking at very carefully. And what we see as we consider this passage, given our natural state of being spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, or uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, given our state of being spiritually dead, the flesh can only produce flesh. Now, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. It's important that we understand that when the Bible talks about flesh, it's usually not talking about our material bodies per se. The Greek word uh, for flesh actually can refer to the physical body, but the Bible almost always uses it to refer to our natural state, to our fallen state to our spiritually dead state. One Greek lexicon defines the word that gets translated as flesh in our Bibles this way. It says, quote, the physical body as functioning entity. In Paul's thought especially, all parts of the body constitute a totality known as flesh, which is dominated by sin to such a degree that wherever flesh is, all forms of sin are likewise present and no good thing can live. End quote. I think that's a pretty thorough, um, biblically accurate definition of flesh when Paul or other biblical authors talk about the flesh. We know that the early Gnostics held a form of of, uh, spiritual mysticism which taught that all material, everything that you can physically see, that is, is evil by nature, just in, in, in light of the fact that it is something that you can see and, and touch and smell, it must be evil. And that would include our physical bodies. That would include our physical flesh, according to the Gnostics. We don't agree with that. 
Christianity does not agree with that. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches us that God made us with bodies, and it's not our physical bodies that are corrupted. Rather, it's our hearts. We ontologically, in our being, are fallen. By nature, as a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden, every aspect of our being suffers from the corruption of sin. Our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies, it all suffers from the corruption of sin. But that doesn't mean that the body, the flesh, is necessarily evil. Think of it this way. The Lord Jesus, when he condescended, what did he do? He took on flesh. Was he evil? Of course not. He never sinned. So physical flesh is not, in and of itself, necessarily evil. So that's not what we're saying when we say that the flesh is constantly sinful. No, the, the Bible is almost referring to the, the sinful corruption of man when it refers to the flesh. And so when Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, we have to understand that this is not just a lesson in biology, Rather, this is a deeply and profoundly spiritual truth that he's giving us here. And this helps us to understand why salvation must, it must be a work that is entirely done by God. Because what we need is spiritual, Jesus says. And yet our dilemma is that all we have is the flesh. And all that the flesh can produce is flesh. If spiritual life required 1% of work from the flesh, it could not happen, friends. If it required our consent, if it required our cooperation, we would be utterly lost in darkness because the flesh only begets flesh. The flesh cannot do what is pleasing to God. A heart, mind, and soul that's darkened by sin cannot produce anything except flesh. And that's all that it would desire. That's all that the flesh nature desires, is to produce more things of the flesh. It doesn't desire God. The flesh does not desire God. It does not seek for God. It cannot understand anything about God. It is enslaved to corrupted desires. And that's exactly why Paul refers to this condition in his letter to Romans as being a slave to sin. Being a slave to sin means you are owned by sin. A slave is owned by his master, and a slave acts in accordance with the wishes and the desires and the directions of the master. And even though sin is this, this cruel and heartless and never satisfied master, our nature, nevertheless, is to love and obey that master. The flesh will not turn away from sin because we don't turn away from what we love and all we can love in the flesh is sin. And so what we need is not for the externals to change. What we need is, is not for our behavior externally to change, but for our desires to be changed. The things that motivate the externals need to be changed. How can that happen? 
If the flesh can only produce flesh, and the flesh constantly desires and yields to sin, what will it take for us to desire rightly? What will it take? What will it take for us to desire or want or pursue the things that are actually contrary to the flesh? It requires an act of the Spirit. It requires a sovereign act of God. It requires the sovereign and effectual calling of God. It requires the new birth. You must be born again. You must be born from above. Because flesh produces only flesh, and spirit begets spirit. The reason Jesus uses this as an illustration, I'm I'm pretty sure, is because we can understand this in a biological sense, right? I mean, we understand that this works with people. Uh, We understand that this works with animals, uh, with plants, and and so on and so forth. We understand that dogs don't give birth to chickens. Uh, We understand that apple trees don't produce avocado seeds, uh, that fish don't give birth to flowers, and, and, and so on and so on. Each gives birth to its kind. Each produces its own kind. We understand this. We understand that each uh, produces exactly what it is ontologically, but in, in, in its essence, in its being. And when we understand this, when we consider this and, and, and understand this in a biological sense, we see that there is a spiritual parallel to this. Just like frogs don't produce hummingbirds and just like dandelions don't produce palm trees, the flesh cannot produce spirit. The flesh cannot produce spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In the words of James Montgomery Boyce, he says, quote, that which comes out of the natural man can produce only that which is natural to man and which is sinful as a result. Now, one of the, one of the beautiful things about the new birth is that it's new. It's new. It's not a case of God taking something or, or somebody that's old and broken down, uh, you know, destroyed by sin and just rehabilitating them or, or, or fixing them. It's not uh, that he, he just changes their, their external behaviors. That's just behavior modification, which is really the same as uh, putting lipstick on a, on a pig, so to speak. It's like uh, painting a, a stop sign yellow. It's still a stop sign. No, the new nature starts with God giving a person a new nature. And this new nature has new affections, new ambitions, new desires, new values, all of which flow from the new heart and the new spirit which God has put within his people. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or, or new creation. Not an old creation that's been fixed. They are a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So this isn't just a case of the old spirit being taught to do something right. It's not a case of the the flesh being taught to act like the spirit. No, this is something that's, that's new. And this is what is necessary because the old nature, the fallen nature that we were all born with, the flesh is useless 
God's word says it's useless. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to, to 13. It's useless. It's absolutely useless, constantly inclined to rebel against God. The old nature, the flesh, is spiritually dead, spiritually blind, totally incapable of producing that which is spiritually good and pleasing to God. This is the doctrine of what you would call total depravity. Total depravity. It's the doctrine of the total corruption of humanity by sin. That's not to say that we're all as bad, that anybody is as bad as they could be. I mean, even Hitler could have killed one more person, right? Or, or ten more people. He could have been worse than, than he was. So it's not to say that we're as bad or as evil or as wicked as we possibly can be. It just means this. It means that the flesh cannot produce or do anything to please God. Because sin corrupts Man's nature, his entire nature, his entire state of being, including our will. Now, one objection to God's sovereign election is based on a misunderstanding of the position. Somebody might say, well, okay, so, so you're saying, when, when you're talking about election, when you're talking about God's sovereign and effectual calling, you're saying that if somebody wants to be saved, they can't be unless they are elect. And the biblical response is to say, you're talking about a desire there. You're talking about somebody's will there. The natural man does not will to be saved. And so we would understand that if a person truly desires salvation, if a person desires to be saved by coming to Christ, it's because of God's grace. It's because they are elect if a person wants to come to Christ, that is by God's grace. And Jesus assures us in John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You see, man's will by nature is only for the things that bring pleasure to or which benefit the flesh. And that's why Jesus would say in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's going to be an interesting study when we get there. But we have to understand that the fallenness of, of, uh, that we have, our, our fallenness by nature, is that man cannot do anything that isn't corrupted by sin. Everything we do by the flesh in our fallen nature is corrupted by sin, even the best things we do. That's why in Isaiah, it's likened to filthy rags. Our, our best deeds are likened to filthy rags. Why? Because everything that humanity does, everything that an unregenerate person does, even the best things, are just disgusting to God. They're corrupted by sin. The flesh can only produce flesh. But the good news is that the work of the Spirit can only produce that which is spiritual. The work of the Spirit produces that which is pleasing and acceptable to God. The work of the Spirit produces that which is characteristic of God. The Spirit can produce what is necessary for our salvation. And, and this helps us to understand why salvation must be a work of God in its entirety, doesn't it? What a person needs is not self-improvement. What a person needs is not a higher self-esteem or a better sense of self-worth. 
or behavior modification, reforming or, or, or changing our ways externally will never be enough to produce what God requires. It will always, our best things will always be nothing but filthy rags to him. God must provide what he requires. And only he can provide what he requires. What a person needs, what God requires, Jesus says, is to be born again. They need a new nature, a nature which is born from above, born of the Spirit. Think of it this way. Can the, can the flesh do anything good? See, if, if your answer is, is no, you've got to proceed to question two. If, if, your, question, if your answer is yes, you've you got to wrestle with some very tough texts that we're going to look at in a minute that, that are, are very clear on this issue, that the flesh cannot do anything good. That brings us to the second question, which is, is it good for a person to repent and believe in Jesus? Ah. Well, if it's impossible for the flesh to do anything good, and it's good for a person to repent and put their faith in Jesus... That leads us to one conclusion. God has to be the one to do it. God has to to give us a righteousness that is foreign to us, that that is alien from us, something outside of us. Now consider what Paul says in in Romans chapter 8. Looking at verses 5 to 7, Paul says this, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It's a very important text. It helps us to understand how desperately wicked the flesh is. The flesh only produces flesh, and the flesh will not obey. It will not yield in the least bit to God because, as Paul says, it's not even able to do so. And he finishes it off, verse 8. He says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Is it pleasing to God to come to Christ? to repent and come to Christ? Yes. Then it can't be done even in the least bit by the flesh. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Salvation cannot depend on our cooperation with God because our nature will not allow us to cooperate with God. Salvation cannot depend on anything good within us. It cannot depend on anything desirable within us because all that is within us is corrupted by sin and inclined towards sin. Salvation cannot be the result of our effort because even our best efforts are still efforts of the flesh. And thus they are sinful through and through. So, that's why a person must be born again. They must be born above. They must be born of the Spirit. And so Paul continues in in Romans chapter 8. He says this in verse 9. He says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So the question that we have to ask is, in whom does the Holy Spirit dwell? Every person who's redeemed. 
every person who's redeemed. And so the person who's redeemed is not in the flesh. In other words, if you're born again, if you're born of of water and the Spirit, if you're born from above, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Now, we've covered fairly thoroughly how we can know that a person is born of the Spirit, right? In the, in the last couple of lessons, we've, we've covered that uh, because of what Jesus says in verse 8. He says that just like you can't see the wind, you, you observe the wind and know that the wind is there because of the effects of the wind. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. He, not it, by the way, Holy Spirit is not an it, it's a he, it's a, it's a person. Uh, he's a person. The Holy Spirit produces specific effects in our lives. But what makes this confusing for us? What is it that makes this less than crystal clear for us? What might cloud or obfuscate the, the effects of the Spirit in our lives? And the answer is the lingering presence of the flesh in the life of the believer. We understand that our need is, is for God to, to put his spirit within us and to replace the, the heart of stone with the heart of living flesh, right? It, we understand that by the grace of God, we're, we're a new creature. We, we become a new creation, right? But what happens to the flesh when God puts a new spirit within us? What happens to the old nature when we become a new creation in Christ? Where does the, where does the flesh go? I mean, if you've just been walking with the Lord for more than five seconds now, you know that the flesh isn't just instantly zapped uh, or instantly uh, rendered powerless the moment a person becomes a Christian, is it? No, we still face the temptation to sin. We face that temptation every day. I remember being in seminary. Uh, as, as a fairly recent convert, the first time I went to seminary in the 90s, and we had to read a book uh, that was written by the seminary's uh, chancellor for our spiritual formation class. And as I read this book, one of the things that stood out to me was the author saying that he had reached a point in his walk with the Lord where he could go several days without sinning. Now, I was, at the time, 24 years old, I was uh, actually 23 years old. Uh, I was just a very young Christian. I, I did not know much of anything. I might have thought I knew something at the time, but looking back now, I'll tell you now, I didn't know much of anything. But I knew, even in, in my immaturity, my spiritual immaturity, I knew that that was wrong. I knew that when he said that he could go several days without sinning, that that was not true. Because I immediately realized that if a person can go even one day without sinning, uh, and with enough discipline could, could go two, uh, why not three? Uh, and if three, why not four? And if you can go four days without sinning, why not a week? And if you can go a week without sinning, how about a month? How about a year? How about a decade? How about your whole life? I mean, it might sound unlikely, extremely unlikely, but hey, if you can make it a couple days, what's to say that you can't prolong that? And if a person can just go on and on without sinning, if a person doesn't, doesn't have that nature, then, then what do we need grace for after we become saved? 
What do we need Jesus for after we become saved? I mean, all we need to do is, is become more disciplined, right? All we need to do is be better people. No, the scriptures tell us very clearly, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And this one book, written by the seminary's chancellor, it just became a major major stumbling block for me. This is somebody who's heard on hundreds and hundreds of radio stations across the country. And I carried this around with me, this idea that this guy claimed that he could go days without sinning. I carried that around with me for years and was angry about it because I felt like, ah, he's, this is a lie. I finally came to understand that he, he probably wasn't lying. Instead, I came to understand that the only reason that somebody would make such a boast is because of pride. It's because of pride. Pride gives us just enormous blind spots, every single one of us, especially when it comes to sin. So, so where does pride come from then? The flesh. It comes from the flesh. And that's a reminder of the fact that the flesh continues to nag us even after we're saved. It can, it can nag even a, somebody who's kind of a spiritual giant who thinks that he can go days without sinning. We're reminded of the reality of the ongoing presence of flesh every time a, a well-known Christian or, or maybe even a pastor falls into some sort of scandal in their life. Maybe it's adultery. Uh, maybe it's because they were power-hungry and ab- abusive. Uh, whatever sin it might be that causes them to disqualify themselves for ministry, we can be sure of at least three things. Whenever this happens, whenever, somebody, whenever some well-known Christian or pastor gets caught up in a scandal, we should know three things. Number one, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a brother in Christ. In fact, if they are receiving the Lord's discipline, we should be all the more sure that they are a brother in Christ. Number two, the sin that disqualified them for ministry was not a work of the Spirit. Whatever it was, whatever they did, it's not something that flowed out of the work of the Spirit in their lives. And number three, it reminds us that the influence of the flesh is not removed from us the moment we're saved. When a person comes to faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that their struggles and their hardships in life are over. Rather, in a very real sense, it's just the very beginning. It's, the, it's the, the starting line of some very real struggles and hardships because there is a very real battle, a spiritual battle that takes place in the life of every Christian. And the longer you walk with Christ, the more you will come to realize exactly how true that is and exactly how much we're influenced by it. You know, I've said it before that when I, when I first became a Christian 26 years ago or so, if you had asked me where I would be today and how severe my spiritual struggle would be to, to get to this you know, point of, of maturity or wherever I am, I would have told you that by this time in my life, I would have overcome all or most of my struggles and my hardships and my battles with sin. Or, or I'd at least be a lot closer than I, than I am today. But what I've found, and what all mature believers have, have come to realize after time, is that the struggle between the spirit and the flesh, it might change. It, it might not be always super intense, but it's still always there. 
until the day we die. The, the, the closer a person grows to Jesus, it's not that they eradicate sin in their lives as much as they become aware of sins that they weren't aware of when they first started walking with the Lord. Think of it this way. If you go into a house, if you want to buy a house, and you, you, you go through all the steps, and you purchase it, and you, and you walk in, and the first thing you realize is that there's black mold in one of the rooms. And you don't know a whole lot about black mold. Uh, you might start thinking that, you know, I'll just spray it with some Clorox, and it'll be done away with. I'll, I'll put some disinfectant and on it, and, uh, and it'll just be gone. And that's just like us when we first start walking with the Lord. We, we realize that there is sin in our lives, the big ones, the, the visible ones, the obvious ones uh, that are evident to everyone. We see those, and so we wage war against those, those big sins. But with black mold, if, if you see it in a room... And it's the bad type. I'm talking about the bad type of black mold. You know that it's not just present in the visible areas. You know that it is absolutely everywhere. It's in the air vents. The spores are in the air vents. You're breathing it, even if you spray it with Clorox. All the Clorox in the world is still in the air. It's everywhere. It's, it's, it's not just something that is just in this one area, and it's deadly. I mean, that's why they tear down homes that have black mold. But that's how it works with sin in our lives. You might mortify. You might, you might uh, have victory over some very big, obvious sins, but you start to realize that it's in the walls. It's in the very fiber of your being. You realize the truth of what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. He said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice every evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. And it brings you to the point where you understand how frustrated Paul is there. You can relate. You can relate to, with, with what he's feeling. And then you come to verse 24 where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He's talking about the, the ongoing presence, the lingering influence of the flesh, even after he was converted. He's talking about the way that it sticks with you even after you're born again and how it struggles against the desires of the flesh. Do you know the despair that he's feeling here? Have you ever experienced the despair that he's feeling, the frustration as he wrote this? Can you relate in your own experience to knowing that you want to do what's pleasing to God and yet you've got this, you've got this inclination, you've got these desires that go to war and pull you in the opposite direction? You should know this from personal experience. Every, every one of you should know this from personal experience. It's a struggle that every Christian faces, and they're going to face it until the day that the Lord calls us home. And the struggle flows from the reality that the flesh can only produce works of the flesh, and only the Spirit can produce works of the Spirit. The new nature and the old nature pull us in opposite directions. It's, it's like an all-out war between the two. And yet, we must not despair. We must not grow discouraged. We must not lose heart. We must not grow weary. You can be assured that the reason that you would 
fear reaching the point of despair is because there's a battle. And sometimes, when you're tempted to sin, it feels like the Spirit is losing. It feels like you're just being pulled constantly and exclusively towards sin. The Spirit isn't losing. But the fact that you even care to begin with is evidence of the Spirit's presence within you. If he didn't dwell within you, friends, the flesh would just rule you. It would dominate you. The desires that you have to sin, they would just have dominion over you, free reign over every part of you. And you know what? You you wouldn't want it any other way if the Spirit of God was not dwelling within you. Think of it like a, a, a tug of war, and you're the rope. But if there's only one team, there, there's no resistance to, to them pulling the rope over the, the line and claiming victory, right? But if you have two teams, if you have one pulling at each end, there's going to be a struggle. And if you've ever watched a, a tug of war, I'm, I'm sure that most of you have, you've seen that there will be times when the rope is getting pulled more this way and, and pulled more that way, and then you know the, the one team pulls a little bit harder and it comes back the other way. That, that's how our spiritual journey works in a sense as well. It's a battle between the flesh and the spirit during which the flesh is being taught to yield to the spirit. But that only happens by the work of the spirit, by the empowerment of the spirit. So how do we respond to this? This battle between the spirit and the flesh, knowing that every one of us is going to experience this. What are we supposed to do with this? First of all, Know this, know that if God has by grace adopted you as his child, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never say, you know what? You've you've done this enough times. I've had it with you. You know, I'm I'm done with you. I'm, I'm leaving you to yourself. No, he who began a good work in you will complete it. The God who has declared the end from the beginning doesn't start something that he doesn't finish. He won't love you if you are in Christ. And this is only if you are in Christ. He will not love you more if you resist the temptation to sin. And he will not love you less for giving in to the temptation to sin. If you are in Christ. His love for you will not change. Think about it this way. If, if he loved us more when we, when we resisted sin, and if he loved us less when we chose to sin, think of what kind of a father would that be? How many of you dads relate to your kids that way? You know, if, if, uh, if your son goes out and mows the yard, do you love him more? If he forgets to mow the yard, do you love him less? If your daughter is supposed to, to vacuum her room, Do you love her more if she does it and less if she doesn't? What kind of a parent does that? We all recognize that there are, that parents don't do that. That love like that is not love. And so, God will not love you more for your obedience, and He will not love you less for your disobedience if you are in Christ. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. For somebody who's not in Christ, how could you not want a love like this? How could you 
turn away from a love like this, a love that isn't based on you, but is based on our Heavenly Father and His love for us, His grace for us. Know also that the Spirit of God empowers us to go to war against the works of the flesh, to mortify them, to put them to death, to slay them, and to bury them once and for all. Paul says this, continuing in in Romans chapter 8, verses 11 to 13, he says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. This reminds us that it is supernatural for a person to put the deeds of the flesh to death. It is not within fallen man's capacity, capability, or or their desire to wage war against the things that give the flesh pleasure. But similarly, it's not within the capability or the desire of the person in whom the Spirit of God has taken up residence and dwells to be just laissez-faire about their own sin, to be ambivalent, to be passive, to not care one way or another if they sin. No, the, the new nature isn't like that. And so the application here is clear. If you are in Christ, if you have been born again, born from above, mortify your sin. Go to war against the desires and the works of your flesh. Go to war against it by the power of the Spirit who dwells within you. Set your mind on Christ. Set your desires, your heart, on pleasing Him and serving Him. On bringing glory to Him rather than on the deeds and the desires of the flesh to which you no longer have an obligation. Paul exhorts the Colossians, Therefore consider or reckon the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In other words, stop listening to your former master. Stop listening to the master who used to own you, but no longer does. Treat him like he's dead. Bury him. Forget about him. He has no authority over you anymore. You have no obligation to obey him anymore. So when you're tempted, what do you do? You're being tempted, remember, by your former master, by, by, by sin, by your flesh, which no longer has power or authority over you. Your will was once in bondage to sin, but Christ redeemed you and set you free. So what are you going to do when your former master sneaks up on you and starts whispering in your ear to do this or do that? Remember how much you used to love doing this and that? What are you going to do when your former master sneaks up on you and tempts you? Pray, first of all. Pray. Ask God for strength. Ask him to remove any desire that lingers from the old nature. 
to remove any desire that would cause you to walk in a way that was not pleasing to him. Set your your mind on Scripture. Remember that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And so there's no excuse when we sin. We don't sin because God didn't give us a way out. He does. He always does. So I'd encourage you to teach yourself to to look for the exit signs, so to speak, when temptation comes. When your former master, the flesh, sneaks up on you with a temptation. Also, starve the desires of the flesh. Starve them. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. See, the more that you walk in accordance with the desires of the flesh, the more difficult those desires will be to overcome, to resist. It's, it's like a fire. When you want a fire to go out, what do you do? I mean, you have to snuff it, right? You have to, you have to uh, take away the oxygen source. That's the way to, to get rid of a fire. Uh, and, and that's usually done with water, or you can do it with dirt, or who knows, a fire extinguisher. But what if you decide instead to throw some dry dead leaves on it? Or what, what do you do if you, uh, what if you decide to, to just throw another log on the fire? Pour gasoline on it. I mean, you don't do those things with the expectation that it's going to put the fire out. And similarly, if you want to put the deeds of the flesh to death, you must starve those desires. By the strength, if you are in Christ, by the strength of the Spirit who dwells within you, you must take away the things that feed those desires. That's the exit sign in that situation. Learn to avoid situations in which you will be vulnerable and tempted in feeding those desires of the flesh. So again, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you are in Christ, God has placed His Spirit within you. He has restored in all of His children, in all who are in Christ, that which was lost in the fall. And so we have to avail ourselves to the Spirit by feeding the Spirit instead of feeding the flesh. And we don't do these things in order to be accepted by God. We do these things because we are accepted by God. Now maybe as you think about your life, you don't feel like there's much of a battle going on sometimes. or Maybe ever. Maybe as you think about your life, you, you realize that you seem to act always consistently in accordance with the flesh. But you're aware of sins that, that dominate you. And you're not sure if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Because it sure doesn't seem like there's a spiritual tug of war going on within you. What are you supposed to do in a situation like that? What are you supposed to do when you're plagued by doubts that have you feeling like that? You are to do the same thing you did at the beginning of your walk with the Lord. Throw yourself, cast yourself entirely on the mercy of God. Like the tax collector, plead, plead with God, Oh God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Because that's your only hope. This is mercy, His grace in Christ Jesus. But you must stop looking to yourself 
for hope of salvation. You must trust entirely in the one who lived a perfect life and yet did not sin, who was yet crucified, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin and yet was made to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what I'm saying is don't keep your eyes fixed on your behaviors. Don't keep your eyes fixed on your obedience or your disobedience. Instead, that's putting your trust in you. Instead, Set your eyes, set your heart, set your mind on Christ and Him alone. Be confident in His work and not in yours. Be confident in His perfect obedience and not your failing obedience. If you'll place all your hopes for salvation, all of your confidence for right standing before God, all of your faith in Christ Jesus, that's a good thing, right? Absolutely. And so you can rest assured that it is not being produced by the flesh. Rather, it's because God has put his spirit within you, not because of what you've done, not because of how good you are, but in spite of how bad you are, and in spite of all that you've done, he has entirely, by grace, given you new life in Christ to even care that these sins dominate you. When all's said and done, who's going to get the glory? Who's going to get the glory for any good that we do that brings glory to Christ? Only Jesus will. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So to God be the glory, because any good that we've done is only because he loved us, he called us, and he gave us a new life and put his Spirit within us, applying the substitutionary work of Christ to us. So may he teach you and may he strengthen you by the Spirit. May he teach and strengthen each of you for battle, that you may walk in his ways and do what is pleasing to him in order that Christ and Christ alone would receive much, much glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for taking what was broken and fallen and and replacing it, not just fixing it up. Thank you, Lord, that by your grace, each of us who are in Christ is a new creation. Thank you that by the power of the Spirit working within us, it's possible for us to live lives that are pleasing to you. It's possible for us to do anything that's pleasing to you, not because of us, but because of the goodness and the obedience of Christ who stood in our place. Father, we confess to you the things that we struggle with in the silence of our hearts. We confess that apart from your Spirit, we are powerless against these things. We confess that apart from the power of your Spirit within us, there's nothing that we can do about these things. That they would dominate us. That they would rule us. And so we're thankful, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit within us, not only do we care 
but you give us the strength to continue the battle. So we pray, Lord, for conviction of sin. We pray, Lord, for assurance of the Spirit's presence within us. And we pray that Christ would be glorified in our lives as we starve the desires of the flesh, as we turn from the desires of the flesh, as we wage war against the desires of the flesh. May Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glorified. And may we live thankful lives, driven not by a desire to be accepted, but by gratefulness for the fact that we are accepted and loved, and that you cannot love us more than you already do. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.